Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. So, um, welcome to North v South, uh, the podcast that is and isn't about design. This week, I'm going to put some sound effects in here. I probably won't. Uh, yeah, uh, we are we are heading uh, off this planet. It's probably the best place if you are British um, to be at the moment, um, floating around in space. I wonder that um, Major Tim wondered why he came back. Um, and what he came back to. I'm sure he and did. It's been a pretty horrific week to be British and uh, and especially English. <laughs> yeah. Um, we can't dwell on that. No. We we dwelled a little bit on this when we met up after last week's podcast, didn't we? Yeah, we did record a little uh, a, a snippet. It was very noisy though in there. So um, and I just haven't had well, the, my big, my my main excuses. There's no excuse. I just haven't had time to uh, to edit it. But I, I will I will bung it up out as a special at some point. Um, but it will just be a quick little snippet uh, in betweeny. Nineteen point five on the platform. Yes, that's good. Um, yeah. So space, Rob. Why 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 space? Well, I uh, I've always been interested in space, but I posted a picture earlier. Uh, on our Twitter account and on Facebook, um, of a couple of books. Um, so I'm kind of doing the books first, um, which were two books that really sparked my interest in space. Um, and the first was a book called The Universe, and I've got it here in front of me, and it's from 1977, uh, and it's absolutely falling apart. This is the rustling of all the bits of its spine falling apart. Um, and my parents bought it for me from a, a friend's book club um and it was way too old for me but it was kind of throughout my younger years it was like this ever-present book on space that taught me a lot about it and absolutely fascinated me um and the other book that i snapped a picture of was bob shaw's orbitsville which is a an award-winning sci-fi book from the 70s uh about earth uh astronauts finding this huge alien megastructure and i read about it i read it in primary school and it wasn't the the typical book you get in a primary school library so i wonder if a teacher had read it and then just donated it but again that's it was one of those things that although i probably didn't read it again for 15 years just you know certain bits about it just always stayed with me so i've been mad about space from a really young age i wanted to be an astronaut when i was a kid i wrote to nasa when the first space shuttle went up and they i got signed photographs of the first shuttle crew um and i haven't quite given up hope of being an astronaut so um so yeah that's why i'm that's why i'm fascinated by space did you have that kind of fascination as a kid or was it trains (coughs) or um tanks (laughs) uh no i didn't i did i didn't i was um i I can't i can't remember what i was fascinated i think dinosaurs maybe um and uh fantasy to some extent yeah but um but what but that age between five and ten um i can't remember i really can't i i don't think space because i don't think it I, i wasn't clever enough to understand what it all meant (laughs) <laughs> I liked um, I liked Blake Seven, but I think I was probably a bit older when that came out. Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know when Blake Seven was. Was it late seventies? Yeah, late seventies, I guess. So, um, and I did like that, and I liked Doctor Who. But, yeah. Um, but the actual real space, I'm not sure. I have to, I have to ask my mum. But it's never been a huge, you know, it's never been like the science of it has never been a huge fascination in my life. I, I what I love about it is um, the space race. And, uh, you know, sort of the right stuff story absolutely yep. fascinates me. 
um, and the Cosmonauts. I loved that exhibition that I went to last year. Well, yeah, it was great. Last year, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, all of that stuff, absolutely love. But as for the science of it, it's too big for my like peanut-like brain to comprehend. So uh, that's why I'm um, I'm just going to be listening to you tonight. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the science was always one of the things that I was really fascinated by. And there was a point that uh, kind of just before A-levels when I thought I'll do astrophysics and then realised that maths was really, really difficult. <laughs> I'd somehow fluked an A at GCSE and thought, oh, this will be fine. And then realised there was an awful lot more to it at A-level. Yeah. But yeah, so that's why I'm crazy about space, which is why I've convinced you to do a a space-themed episode, so we should have some space space news, shouldn't we? Yeah, I'm waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the first thing, I, there's, um, there's a new space probe. I say new, it was launched five years ago, um, which is on its way to Jupiter, called Juno, and it has a very uh, melodramatic little intro video, which um, you saw earlier full of kind of foreboding music and gravitas and stuff. It's a bit weird. It's more like the beginning of a horror story than a space mission. But it's going to be the first uh, the first probe that's orbited Jupiter uh, since Galileo did in 1996. Um, and it's going to take amazing photographs of Jupiter. It's going to get closer to the clouds than any other probe has before. Um, and it's... Uh, it's going to do its orbital insertion next week. <clears throat> um, so it's going to be great if you if you if you kind of like seeing these pictures we get back from the Cassini probe around Saturn and the pictures we had late last year from Pluto with a New Horizons mission. Then keep your eye on Jupiter and the Juno mission because it's going to send back some mind blowing pictures of Jupiter and its clouds. So I'm, um, so I'm guessing it, because it's five years old, only five years old, it's got some pretty amazing optical tech on it. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's the camera that's going to be sending back pictures is actually um, not its primary science thing. That's kind of its science outreach um, instrument. But still, yes, because it's new, it's just better than anything that's been there before. Um, I think it's main mission is to study in the infrared and study the magnetic fields of Jupiter um, which isn't quite as lovely to look at I guess for the people back home and uh, wanting to fund these things um, but while I was looking into that um, I also found uh, a link to a list of all the current space probes that are active in the solar system and it's weird we're in this kind of the, this beginning of this sort of golden age of space exploration you know we're we're seeing a lot of things for the very first time so we've you know visiting close up comets and dwarf planets and asteroids um, you know we've just seen Pluto for the very first time um, and um, but there's still there's kind of over 20 missions still active uh, around various planets, including, you know, the Mars rovers, um, Mars orbiters, Cassini around Saturn, uh, the Dawn spacecraft, which has zipped past uh, Ceres, the asteroid, um, and the Voyagers and Pioneers are still out there. And the Voyagers, I think they're still getting the occasional ping from the from the Voyagers that launched in the early 70s that are at the very edge of the solar system right now. So it's like this amazing kind of human technology scattered across our solar system um and you know and there's more to come so it's it's uh, fascinating stuff yeah, yeah and, that, and that is literally 50 years or really actually yeah 40 years 45 years of yeah of yeah. the initial thing so imagine what it's the exponential is going to be like if uh, we can turn our energies towards more of these probe things it kind of kind of says to you why well, you know if there is another civilization out there within reach then it would have you know an advanced civilization would have would have sent out probes many years ago wouldn't it 
Yeah, I mean, there's the whole the thing. There's Drake's equation, which uh, is supposed to give you a number for the amount of civilizations there should be uh, in the universe at one time, uh, which is a complex equation, but it makes lots of guesses. Is it 42? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, well, basically, the, the number that comes up with is there should be they should be everywhere because the universe is so old that even traveling at very slow speeds, there's plenty of time for civilizations to colonize the entire galaxy. Um, so that leads on to this thing called the Fermi paradox, which is the fact that the Drake equation suggests aliens should be everywhere or signs of aliens should be everywhere. And yet they're not. So there's this paradox uh, and no one's really come up with a decent solution um, to it. Maybe life is just, you know, supremely rare. And we're, we're the lucky ones that made it. Or maybe there's something out there that's inhibiting life um, from uh, kind of reaching uh, spacefaring technology. Uh, or maybe there's something more sinister. Um, yeah. So, um, but yes. There's a. If a civilization is old enough, it should have been able to send out enough probes to kind of make contact with every star in the galaxy. And there's actually a um, a thing called a von Neumann probe, which um, is supposed to be uh, like a self-replicating spaceship, which would colonize the the galaxy in a very short space of time. Basically, you know, it would send itself to one planet and multiply and replicate itself and send itself out to other planets. And because of the way that works with each probe replicating, kind of like rabbits, you know, in a very short amount of time, you've colonized the galaxy. And yet we see no signs of it. So there's that paradox. Mm. But um, but it is a good time for space exploration, particularly because we've got um, private space companies now you know making real strides uh with spacex and blue origin well elon musk at spacex has suggested that he wants to land people on mars by 2024 which is <laughs> good a good decade before nasa planned to do so right um but i wouldn't put it past him you know he wants to start launching missions in 2018 and launch them every two years essentially sending, testing the technology and sending supplies uh, and then send humans in 2024 and then they'll, you know, land at this spot that's already got equipment, uh, which is, you know, it's, uh, seems a simple and logical enough plan. I was wondering where he got all his money from and I realised he, he basically made PayPal. Is he <clears throat> yeah. the PayPal guy? He is the PayPal guy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and also the owner of Tesla yeah. and Solar City, the kind of electronic solar battery company and everything. So he's a real life uh, Tony Stark from Iron Man, <laughs> which I think he quite likes that comparison. Yeah. Well, um, I'm surprised he didn't put that video together for the Juno group. <laughs> yeah. Um, J-A-I, whatever it was, J-O-I. Yeah. That's what they're Jupiter calling Jupiter orbital insertion, which means it's just going to fly past a big planet and possibly get pulverized to mush by uh, bits of rock. Yes, <laughs> or, the, or the or the magnetic uh, magnetic field of Jupiter. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so that's all good. Um, what else news wise? Uh, NASA talking of space exploration again. Uh, NASA have just tested their big new rocket booster which they're gonna is gonna be part of their SLS which is space launch system. It's gonna be this huge rocket that they're gonna launch people to the moon and Mars eventually. Um and it's gonna be twenty percent more powerful than the Saturn V rocket carry kind of twice the cargo. Uh, so they tested the one of the boosters, the solid rocket boosters in the desert somewhere in America this week. Made a hell of a noise and a hell of a mess but look pretty spectacular. Um, but that's, they're pinning their hopes on that, so, you know, they can't afford that to fail, really. So with that, they, um, 
it's been ama- an amazing pause, hasn't it, in rocket technology, though. So from Saturn V, when was that built? 60 years? 60s, yeah. So, and... Um, and what was that? Fifty years has been yep. since they got a rocket anywhere near the power of the Saturn V. Have you yep. have you have you seen the Saturn V? I haven't. No. I saw one in Houston a few three years ago. Or so I'm very jealous. <clears throat> it was really sad. I found it really sad. Um, it was really run down, and uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was like going to a Slough Trading Estate <laughs> back in <laughs> the eighties before it was even closely snazzy. And uh, it was just lots of uh, low grey buildings. You didn't really quite know what was in. And then there was just this hangar with this single Saturn V rocket in. There was, you know, fly-blown windows and really quite run down, actually. Um, And we went to the launch centre. I don't know what they call it, command centre or whatever. And again, that was like... You know, well, I mean, it, it would it would have been because it was a sort of a launch centre in the sixties. But it, again, it was really like going into a nineteen seventies hotel lobby and then up through some rickety old stairs, and then you were in that in that building. But it's I guess, sad, isn't it? Yeah, you can really see that they've lost their money. Yeah. But it was just seeing the rocket was incredible. It is absolutely yeah, sure. enormous. Yeah, it's weird that the basic technology hasn't really changed that much. You know, they've gone from liquid oxygen rockets that they used in the 60s to solid rocket boosters that they used on the shuttle and they're using for the SLS and things. But, you know, there hasn't been any real breakthroughs. The only breakthroughs come through, um, there's a thing called an ion drive. It sounds really Star Trek-y. Um, but that's basically like an electronic... Uh, engine that accelerates particles using electricity or magnetic fields or something um, but it's very weak but it can be uh, a constant propulsion for a long time so it's no use for getting you off the planet but once you're in space you know it can run for years on end so it can accelerate you up to a really high speed but you know no use getting you uh, off off earth so why do you think it is that uh, no one's been back to the moon? Is it just because there's no point? Or? There's not a lot of point. You know, it's incredibly expensive to go to the moon. It's very difficult to get out of low Earth orbit with um, with people. So all these satellites, um, the SpaceX launch and communication satellites, most of them are in low Earth orbit, so kind of 180 to... 250 miles above the surface of the earth which is nothing you know if you imagine the the size of the earth is like a a beach ball then all those spaceships flying around the earth are only a couple of millimeters away from the surface which is just bonkers um and to get anything further away than that you know requires a lot more energy so a much bigger rocket um much more fuel so, yeah, you've got to have a really good reason. And uh, unfortunately, it was the Cold War that provided the reason to go to the moon. I mean, we're, you know, we're still going. There's a, I think there's a Japanese uh, and, a, and a Chinese rover on the moon at the minute. Is there? But, yeah. Yeah, there's a little Chinese rover that takes, uh, takes some pictures and doing a bit of science up there. Thing is, it's just not in the public eye, is it? Unless you're a real follower of space, it's not. You know, that's something that's incredible, isn't it? That there's stuff on the moon. Was that in the news? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. It it was, but kind of. You know, it's it's at the beginning of the the Chinese um, sort of space exploration. So you know, it's not a, an all singing, all dancing thing. But yeah, I guess you know NASA and SpaceX and Elon Musk. You know, they know how to publicise things. Um. And use social media and fancy videos, whereas uh, you know the Indian space uh, space uh, exploration and the Japanese and the Chinese, you know, just much smaller scale and you know don't have the resources or the kind of nous to to publicise themselves. I mean, maybe they do at home. You know, maybe it's huge. You know, huge news back in China and India about these space probes, but. You know, maybe I think the same about SpaceX. Yeah. So the one that is uh, is really quite active at the moment is the um, 
the thing on Mars, the rover? Curiosity. Right. Yes. Which is a big kind of size of a people carrier. It's number five um, is alive, basically, isn't it? It is, basically. Short circuit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's doing uh, amazing stuff. It's It's been up there for, what, three years now? Um, and uh, it's still driving around. It's amazing to see the pictures of it, and you see the wear and tear on its wheels and things because of driving over this kind of, you know, super rough terrain. You know, these aluminium wheels, it's got a pockmark full of dints and holes and tears and things. But it's still going. Uh, and it does take brilliant pictures. Uh, it takes brilliant self-portraits as well. Um, uh, so, yeah, the, the way it takes those self-portraits, um, it has a robotic arm with a camera on the end. And it basically moves the arm around, taking pictures from different angles so that it can be... The, the arm itself can be edited out of those photographs and the kind of gaps filled in. So you see these kind of weird photographs of uh, this Mars rover as if taken from someone standing a few feet away from it. But that's, they look fab. That's like Man Who Fell to Earth, isn't it? The camera that Bowie invents that makes him oh, a yeah. millionaire. Yeah. God, I've forgotten all about that. Um yeah, I mean, it, they look... I mean, what surprised me with the images, because I haven't paid any attention to this, so I'm like the, uh, you know, showing a caveman, uh, shaking the bone, <laughs> the bone at the spaceship. But um, is the daylight is incredibly Earth-like, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's... And because of the light, it look, they look 3D, like 3D renders. <laughs> they really do. Yeah, I, Cause I guess Because it's diffused light. Yeah, I guess there's quite a lot of processing done. Um, you know, I don't really know how bright um, it would really appear if you were on Mars because obviously it's twice as far from the sun, just about, or one and a half times as far from the sun as as the Earth. So it's going to be proportionately uh, darker. Oh, that's that all inverse square law, isn't it, I think? Um, but yeah, it is a really kind of diffuse light. The sky kind of looks like this sort of pale, sort of frosty, pinky grey, doesn't it? Um, with the sun quite diffuse um, and quite an even light. So maybe that's what makes the photographs look kind of slightly rendered. Um, I mean, maybe it's p- to do with the, you know, the atmosphere is super thin on Mars. So there's ab- absolutely nothing to give any sense of depth, I guess. Right. So maybe that's something to do with it. Mm. Yeah, but I love all those pictures it sends back. Um, amazing bit of kit. And they've got another one exactly the same on Earth that they use to test stuff. And, you know, if anything goes wrong, they they, uh, they try things out on it to get it working again. Re-upload it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other bit of news I had was um, today, quite convenient that we're doing a uh, space themed podcast because it's asteroid day um which is we've had we've had pi day we've had freelance day and now asteroid day it's like an asteroid awareness day and it was weirdly it was set up i think amongst other people by brian may uh who waffles on about the dangers of asteroids quite a bit um and today is the uh an anniversary of um the impact in Siberia, I think, of uh, a huge comet in 1908, which flattened thousands of square kilometres of forest. Um, I think it's the biggest impact we've had sort of in human history. Um, so, yeah, asteroid day. <laughs> Have a look out your window and see if you can see one. <laughs> I think it'd be too late, won't it? Protecting, I mean, that's that just sounds like Hollywood. Kind of. <laughs> well, the, the whole problem is uh, it's not the asteroids we know about that are a danger. It's the ones we don't see coming. Because um, it wouldn't take a very big asteroid to you know, do an awful lot of damage. The one that exploded over Russia a couple of years ago, um, Chelyablinsk, I think it was, was only about 10 metres across and exploded about 50 miles up. Um, but still knocked people off their feet and shattered 
thousands and thousands of windows and injured quite a few dozen people. Um, and we didn't see that one coming. So if that had been, you know, 10 times the size, you'd have been looking at a very big hole in the ground and no, uh, no Russian town of Chalyublinsk. And amazingly, a lot of these spaceships out there are just made of foil, aren't they? They're just literally a separation where they were yeah. in, the, in the old days. Yeah, no, they still are. There's, because I guess in the emptiness of space, there's just, you know, they don't have to be structurally sound. You know, they have these huge great kind of solar panels that, you know, might be 30 or 40 or 50 feet wide, um, supported on really kind of flimsy looking struts. And yeah, like you say, the, a lot of the, the materials used are these kind of microscopically thin foils and things. And it's, I guess it's all just about reflecting heat from the sun so they don't overheat. They don't really have to solve any structural or serve any structural purpose. So, with the um, complete, yeah, so in some of the space uh, films, <laughs> space films, the Apollo, yeah. like the Apollo film, they see weird light, kind of almost <clears> like <throat> they're creatures or bees or something like that. They call them. Have you heard of that phenomenon at all? Yeah. Yeah, that's mentioned in uh, the Wright stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, quite a lot of the early, the Mercury uh, and Gemini pilots saw these weird uh, weird lights, yeah, outside the, the little portholes of their spaceships as they were orbiting Earth. And they talked about them as kind of moving independently and glowing. Uh, and I don't think anyone's ever really figured out what they were. I think it's assumed that they were... Space bees. Either space bees or kind of particles of gas or fragments of ice or something that were, you know, obviously just kind of in the same orbit um, as the spaceship. Um, But, yeah, I think it freaked out quite a lot of the the early astronauts, maybe triggered some weird thoughts in uh, a few of them. So moving to, like, um, nations exploring space do you think there's going to be i mean obviously tension on earth is uh as 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 um taut as ever but when we get into space and there's the free-for-all kind of western you know almost like a gold rush feel to it yeah nations are racing to claim things how's that governed how how is that going to work out is is that going to spell trouble do you think i'm sure it will i mean there are laws in place at the minute uh, that govern uh, the exploration of space. No, no nations can claim uh, any other planets or any other planetary bodies. But that might be put under the test, you know, in the next ten or twenty years when someone finally lands on an asteroid and decides to start mining it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the reason space has, even though we had the, you know, the space race which was triggered by the Cold War, space has been quite uh, an area of collaboration um, and I think that's predominantly because it's it's run by scientists not politicians um, but you're right when it when space travel becomes more commonplace and more commercialized uh, and it is a race for resources then there's bound to be problems I guess I mean hopefully those problems will be far enough away from earth that it might not matter to us um, but those uh, sci-fi stories I'm writing, the asteroid belt blues. That's kind of what that's all about. Yeah, that's what I was going to get onto. Is was was that was you know you, obviously your interest in space isn't just us talking about space. It actually it it forms the basis of why you draw and the base. Uh, you know a lot of what you believe in as a. a what you aim for in an illustrator, as an yeah. illustrator, is uh, is is space oriented. Uh, oh, that didn't come out well at all, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, absolutely. So your your key your key illustrations are mainly space based, um, and are. you've been writing uh, the background to a set of stories called um, Asteroid Belt Blues. Asteroid Belt Blues. So, uh, and that does touch on the politics of space, doesn't it? It does. The background certainly does. It talks about, you know, the early days of exploration and colonisation of the solar system. But then the, the stories themselves are set, you know, 
two or three hundred years after that, um, where the asteroid belt is kind of like the new frontier, Mars is colonised and the, the big asteroids are colonised, but it's a bit of a free-for-all, um, a little bit like the Wild West and the Gold Rush. Um, and the characters in the first couple of stories I've written are very much like those. They're like the 49ers, the, the kind of gold diggers and the, the, the miners that went out and stuck their, stake their claims, um, hoping to make their fortunes. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows? It may well be like that, you know. You know, if we can, if we can find some way of launching things cheaply into space, then you know, it's going to be up for anyone, isn't it? And that brings me on to my only bit of space research because uh, I'm, uh, uh, yeah, I'm an idiot. So um, <laughs> no, uh, my bit of space research was um, or space news is sort of uh, related to what's happened to us recently as the British because we were at the forefront of um, uh, post-Second World War rocket research, space research um, our cinema and culture was absolutely jam-packed with you know, Quatermass and you know, all sorts of sci-fi films and um, we explored all that kind of um, cultural phenomena around around sci-fi, you know, Dan Dare the, um, what was it the Festival of Britain um, yeah, all, Skylon. Skylon. They were all obsessed, weren't they, with, with space at that time. And then it yeah. suddenly just completely went away and there's no recollection of what what we were aiming for. And um, I saw a documentary on Channel... I was telling you, wasn't I, last week? Mm. I saw a documentary on... I think it was Channel 4 years ago um, and it was about the British space uh, programme and our test... Um, site for rockets was on need was at needles on the Isle of Wight. I thought it was the opposite, but it actually was on needles, and it's still there yeah. at the base. You can go and have a look at it. Yeah, um, I had a look on Google Maps today. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? And we actually launched our space our rockets from uh, Woomera because we were exploring yeah. using our own delivery system. I mean, like much of the space race, why I'm deeply cynical about rocket technology is that it, it was entirely you know, military base to build ICBMs, wasn't it? Or yes, um, to deliver payloads that didn't require um, aeroplanes that would fall out of the sky mm. or be shot down. Um, and uh, the British were developing their own um, set of uh, rockets. Um, and uh, but my fact that I found out, yeah, it was going to replace the V bomber fleet. And um, the fact I found out today is that uh, this. The last launch, the last British-built rocket launched, was actually in 1971. Um, wow. And uh, it launched a satellite called Prospero X3, which is still flying around. Um, and uh, sadly, they're not in contact with it anymore because the British um, satellite tracking system was closed down in 1996. And it was at Lasham, which is literally village two villages away from me. <laughs> of course, there's still there's still an airfield, isn't there? Yeah, they, they, they used to do, do some... repairs there. I think they've just gone bust, actually. But they, they, I, they, I used to do pro- some, I, used, I used to do some design work for ATC Lasham. Right. Okay. I didn't realise that was so close to you. Yeah, no, it's really close. Yeah, and um, but the amazing thing is that this happened on October the twenty eighth, nineteen seventy one, um, and it used a, 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 a Black Arrow carrier rocket, um, which was the sort of the follow-on from a from a rocket called the Black Knight. <laughs> was what was it you said name. about those? What was yeah. it you said about they, those? They sound like, it sounds more like a sex toy, doesn't it? The Black Knight. <laughs> it does, Knight. A bit. Um, it does but, a bit. Yeah, we had the coolest names. Um, yeah. But on the same day, do you know what happened? No. The British House of Commons voted 356 to 244 in favour of joining the e- European <laughs> Economic Community. <laughs> <laughs> How incredible. Isn't that amazing? So my thing yeah. is, are we now going to get back to space? <laughs> Do you think that's it? Do you think it was the EU holding us back? <laughs> well, I wonder why Why we was was it new, um, did the you know us joining the EC uh, end all those needs for, um, or requirement for um, us to develop our own rocket technology? Um, Maybe. But we actually, we ended up using American Polaris, didn't we? Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I just think that's an amazing coincidence, isn't it? it is. The exact same day, the it last time crazy. we launched a, a, our own spa- uh, rocket into space was the last time we were a sovereign country, as, uh, as they would call it. Yeah. yeah, which is, um, you know, uh, very sad. But um, but also, you know, is that the po- is that where we're, we're heading in the future? Do you think that Great Britain can produce? Have they got? Have we got the technology to produce our own spaceships? No, <laughs> uh, we've got very well. We've got quite a space industry, but it's all component and kind of satellite based and instrument based so like so so like our um like our car industry yeah we provide we you know produce components that go on a lot of these probes you know there's british space stuff on you know a lot of these things circling planets or on uh other planets at the minute but whether or not anyone else you know smaller countries are are ever going to produce their own rockets I don't know. I mean, obviously, the European Space Agency and its Ariane provides a huge source of, you know, launch potential. And then there's NASA and then, you know, these new private space companies which are, you know, creating reusable rockets that are going to bring the the launch prices down by a factor of 10 or 20 or 30. So would any country... That becomes widely available and commonplace. Is any country going to spend tens of billions developing their own? Probably not. No. Well, that shut me up then. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think that's all the news. So with your um, asteroid belt blues, um, yeah, you. What 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 influenced you, or who influences you? Who are science fiction specialist illustrators? Uh, so Chris Foss is probably the most influential for me. Uh, he was a British illustrator born on the Channel Islands, still going now, still knocking out amazing work. Um, but in the sort of seventies and eighties, you know, probably half the sci-fi novels that you saw would have had a Chris Foss cover. Uh, and he did these amazing, kind of quite sort of bulbous and gigantic-looking spaceships and robots, and they were all painted um, kind of in bright colours. They always remind me a little bit of like a kind of some sort of space-going JCB or Earth-moving vehicle with kind of warning, warning stripes. You know, they look sort of real and fantastical at the same time. Um, so that's definitely something that feeds through into my work um, with my love of orange Um, but he also worked on lots of sci-fi films as well Uh, so he worked on Superman, Alien, Flash Gordon uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Um, uh, and as I said in our notes he also did all the naughty pictures for the joy of sex which is um, what that beardy bloke the beardy bloke yeah he did all those as well, which is it's quite a different string to your bow, that, isn't it? <laughs> if you're an illustrator. Sci-fi book covers and and that. Um, but there are a couple of other illustrators whose work I really love. Um, Mobius, um, Jean Giraud, who you know, because um, I think it was you that really got me onto Mobius when we worked together. Um, I think you recommended the Incal. Right. Which was one of his books. And I didn't really know of his work until I saw it and then realised that all the artists I really loved were massively influenced by Mobius. Um, so all uh, loads of kind of uh, 2000 AD comic artists, you look at their work and it's like, oh, okay. So that's where they got their inspiration from. And it's Mobius's work. Uh, so his is a lot of his stuff is very sort of fantastical and surreal. Apparently he took an awful lot of drugs um, when working on things like uh, the Incal and Arzak. Um, but again, he worked on loads of films as well, uh, including Alien and The Fifth Element and The Abyss. Um, and both him and Chris Foss worked on a version of um, a film of Frank Herbert's Dune, 
which never got made, but was um, uh, going to be made by the uh, director Jodorowsky, um, who'd worked with Mobius on other things as well. Um, yeah, so those two, I think, probably influenced my work more than any others at the minute. And then for kind of real retro sci-fi stuff, there's a guy called Virgil Finlay. Um, who's this? You're right there. That's yeah, my wife coming in and depositing. Oh, a pie. I, I see. Um, yeah, there's a guy called Virgil Finlay. Hello. Uh, who's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's in America? Who was an American artist? Died in the seventies, I think. Um, and he just produces the most amazing kind of, or produced the most amazing detailed black and white line work yeah, science fiction illustrations amazing. and they're just gorgeous yeah I've never seen his yeah. work before yeah it's beautiful isn't it yeah uh, really it's mind almost, bending it's almost good. like um, 19th century engraved yeah stuff. yeah so he did he used to use uh, those kind of scratch board right. things as well so that's a little bit like that engraving but yeah amazing light in his in his images as well um but he's, yeah, I'd, I'd like to say he's an influence. He's he's not really an influence. He's just someone whose work I absolutely adore. <clears throat> yeah. So those are probably my, I, I guess the other um, guy who influences my work at the minute is Ian McHugh. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you follow his stuff? I, I, I did only, only recently because you told me about him at the beginning of this yeah. podcast and I just think he's the most incredible talent I've ever I, 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 his, his use of light is yeah. s- sensational and, yeah uh, so he's a he's, he's a games a, he's a games concept artist and illustrator and I think he's working on some films as well um, and he does comic covers occasionally but mostly stuff is um, in the video game industry and the stuff he posts is, is generally just all his his own personal work. He has these amazing kind of flying ships and you know ruins and just. But they're they're they're, they're very industrial, aren't they? They're very um, they are they're rusty, bashed. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he just and he can just draw in three dimensions like nobody I've ever seen. Actually, it really yeah. is phenomenal. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I don't have, think if you haven't anyone... checked his work out, then you're missing uh, an absolute joy. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone else working today that who's kind of conjured up such um, a rich-looking world of work. Um, I'm just kind of dying for him to find the time to, you know, create something narrative out of it all, a yeah. book or a comic or a film or a something, because it's just you just want to leap into it and find out more. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> so these are these are people that you admire, but they don't they don't form your style, do they? They're not. Um, although Chris Foss what? maybe the the colours and the the use of um, uh, the, the style of the spaceships that he, that he draws. Yeah, yeah, and I guess Ian McHugh um, with the kind of you know, like you said, battered and rustic nature of them the, the kind of sort of industrialiness um the kind of workmanlike spaceships i guess that feeds into the, the stuff i like to draw I, I tend not to draw any sort of sleek super sci-fi looking stuff it's all you know most of my little spaceships look more like kind of two-man submarines because that's kind of how i imagine them working you know kind of slightly modular things built around a you know, some crazy glass cockpit so you can see everything out there. Like just odd little workman like space tugs. Yeah. Well I guess that's your that's the universe you're building, isn't it? It will be yeah. a, a lonely uh one man against exactly. an anniversary, you know, much in the spaghetti western style of storytelling. Yeah. Bad guy, good guy, you know, Yeah, the, I'll the have quest. to share that I'll have to share the I guess I've got one story complete. I'll have to. Um, oh, I can't send you wait to read it. Yeah, no, that'd be. Yeah. Be yes. Great. Now we were talking about, um, uh, you know, what I was interested in as a kid, but I think I was more fascinated by, um, and I put these in the notes, and I, um, excuse me if I go off on a on a tangent, but it was more it was more um, 
earthbound sci-fi that i really liked um so i liked dystopian stuff you know end of the world you know positive Mm -hmm. stuff Um, but I, I remember a play for today that I saw at school that really affected me deeply. And it was called um, Zed for Zachariah. Uh, and I think uh, looking at it today, the original book was by um, a chap called Robert C. O'Brien, uh, who wrote Mrs. Frisbee and the Nats, the Rats of Nim. Do you remember that as a cartoon? It rings it? a bell. It's about no, it sort of intelligent bell. rats that are living, that, that have been experimented on, but have become... Um, you know, they, they're building their own world underground. Yeah. Uh, it's a great cartoon. I don't think it's Disney, but I th- who, who was it else who was doing films around that time? Um, anyway, it's a good it's a good film. But th- this this um, this play is about a um, well, the book the book the, the the play was set in Wales, and um, the parents go away to go to the market, and there's a an event, and they never come back. And uh, weeks later, she's, they live in a remote valley. Uh, a scientist comes along in a full, uh, sort of fallout suit, dragging uh, a cart behind him, and sees and meets this girl. And it's about their relationship and uh, and what happens in this closed valley with nobody else around. So it's, it's a brilliant story. It's very scary. Um, I won't say how it ends. You can, I, I've got the link here. It's on YouTube. The whole the whole episode. Um, but it really affected me that kind of that loneliness on earth after some catastrophic event um, yeah do you know when you when i read it on here i thought oh, that really rings a bell but i don't know why um and it's because they made a film of it last year did they yeah starring um oh no i've done it haven't i <laughs> uh chiwetel ijefor i've no idea how you pronounce his name you're the british actor right uh and chris Pine, who plays Kirk in all the new Star Trek films, um, and Margot Robbie, who's uh, Harley Quinn in the new um, DC Suicide Squad film. So uh, I think it was sort of reasonably well received. Um, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. But yeah, I knew I'd heard of it somewhere. But I, I, think, I, re- I think that that film, or the, 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 the play has the same feel as that emptiness and loneliness that space, I think, would would be. We, we tend to think yeah. of it as a kind of, uh, you know, teams going out there, but it will be a very lonely one-man, two-man kind of journey, yeah. won't they, for a look, for many, many years. Yeah, I imagine so. I mean, well, certainly how, how I How many people it. will they send to Mars? Two, three? Yeah, something like that. Maybe a few more. I guess it... I, the, I think the capsule that he can launch can seat five or six so i guess it's possible it could be as many as that but um yeah certainly not going to be um not going to be any parties <clears throat> yeah which, uh, there was another book um that this will come back to space but um whitley striber writer wrote a book called um war day um, mm. and it was about uh Life after a, a, a limited nuclear strike by <laughs> I'm really positive here, right? <laughs> by Russia and America, but that again that really affected me. But he went on to write and have a really funny turn. But he claimed uh, I don't know when it was, but he claimed that he was visited by uh, aliens, or he never called them aliens. He called them I don't know what he called them visitors, or non, non-human entities. <laughs> and he wrote a book called Communion, which was oh, later Whitley made, Stryber's Communion, yeah, yeah, which was later made into a film with. Christopher uh, Walken. Yes. Um, but yeah, very strange man, um, and still writing books about this yeah. this encounter. Um, and he subsequently claimed that he was visited by a, a white Caucasian guy in a hotel room. <laughs> I won't go on from there, but who told him that we were going to face ecological breakdown, and he had to t- he had to tell the world. Um, and, yeah. he, and he continues to do that kind of thing. So very yeah. strange, but. Um, but yeah, the, the the whole alien thing is what most people are obsessed with, isn't it? The, yeah, sort of he wrote, the incoming. Yeah, yeah, he wrote the the hunger as well, didn't he, Willie Stryber? That was it. Which, yeah, uh, David Bowie and Susan Sarandon. Peter Murphy from Bauhaus. What? At the beginning, the band playing is Bauhaus. Oh, was, yeah. Uh, okay. So, have you got things to recommend for people to look at further? Um, books or any books to recommend? Well, I mentioned a couple of books. Uh, at the beginning of my little 
thing. But <laughs> I would definitely recommend Bob Shaw's Orbitsville as a sci-fi book because it's fantastic. Uh, my the Dyson um, Sphere that you're talking about in it. That's is that yes. Is that so that's that? like an yeah, that's like an alien megastructure. So a sphere built around a star. Ah, right. With so, a a diameter of about 180 million miles. Of course, that'd be easy so, to build, wouldn't it? Big, yeah. But there's that whole thing. Have you heard of Tabby Star? No. So this is a a star. I can't remember how many light years away from Earth, and it's. Um, They've noticed that it um, has a strange light curve, so they thought there was a planet orbiting it. This is how the um, the I can't remember what the telescope's called. You know, they discovered all these um, extrasolar planets. You know, and there's thousands of planets they've discovered outside the solar system now, and they detect them all by detecting the the dip of light as a planet passes in front of a distant star. Yeah. Um, so this tabby star, uh, there was a dip of light, but it was really weird. Instead of dipping it by the, you know, decreasing the amount of light by, you know, a fraction of a percent, it was dipping by nearly twenty percent, and then eight days later it was dipping by fifteen percent, and then and it was kind of this irregular. And they they've tried to think of all these kind of scientific ways in which this could be possible. And they haven't really got a clue. They think the closest they've come is it might be a huge, gigantic cloud of comets that's somehow blocking the light from this star. But really, they would then show up in the infrared and there's nothing to be seen in the infrared. Uh, and someone said, well, maybe it's uh, an alien megastructure, a Dyson sphere, in the process of being built or dismantled. Of course. Uh, and weirdly, it actually fits what you'd expect to see. But obviously... You know, uh, if you found something unusual in space, then aliens should be the last thing you suggest. But just goes to show there are some weird things going on that we are so far away from understanding that, you know, it's almost as easy to jump to the conclusion that it must be aliens. Yeah. Building um, a 180 million square yeah. like, tower block. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, yes. But uh, I, I, I'd recommend anyone to get a good book on space and read it and expand your mind and be fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, I do have a website of the week. Right. Uh, which is space and sci-fi related, uh, and it's called Typeset in the Future. Uh, and it is a website that looks at the typography of science fiction films. Um, and it looks at them in quite some depth. The latest one is Blade Runner. I think there's 5,000 words they've written about um, the type used. And it goes into super detail. So there's the opening uh, kind of crawl of text that tells you about the the situation. And they you know they look into the typesetting of that and the, the fonts used. And then uh, the Tyrell Corporation logo and the text that's used on the uh, Voigtkampf machine. Um, yeah, super detailed. And they pick out the text that's used on a, a newspaper that you see a little flash of and the, the logos of the flying cars and, the, you know, I mean, it's super, super detail. Um, and it's fascinating stuff. And they've done, so far, they've done um, 2001 Moon alien and the latest one is blade runner so if you like sci-fi films and you like graphic design and typography then that's just the best site in the world it's really very cool it is brilliant yeah fantastic so i mean someone who's is going to an awful lot of trouble uh analyzing all these films yeah do you think they li- they live in a cabin and get snowed in for winter or something Maybe they do. <laughs> Maybe they do. But, uh, well, it makes the world a rich place, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. Uh, and you've got a little website. Yeah, I've got a book of the week. Um, mine's called Noggin and the Moon Mouse. <laughs> it's space-related, Rob, don't Yeah, it, yeah. No, no, no. Um, basically, it's the, uh, it's the story that's the origin of um, the Clangers, our favourite yes. space-dwelling mice. Um and uh, it's how they fell in the trough. Uh, one of them fell in a trough uh, at Nog in the Nogs 
gaff. Um, so yeah, read that one. I I remember it from being a kid. Um, I think Noggin and Og was maybe just just a smidgen too too uh, early for me. Yeah, I'm not sure it was on television when I. It might have been finished on television, but I used to get the books from the library, oh, okay. um, and they are illustri- illustrated by Peter Furman, who uh, made Bagpuss, um, Ivor the Engine. Uh, yeah, you know all the the real. You know, they all of these classics were made. I think we've said this before, but they were made in Peter Furman's shed in, yeah. in Kent, um, along with Oliver Postgate. Um, but what I didn't realise was that Peter Furman was an illustrator before he started building the sets and the characters uh, in these BBC animations. And uh, he, um, and that's where my website of the week was, because that led me on to look at his work. And um, he's got a site still, he's still alive, and he's got a site where he just posts his prints. And, and I really recommend you go along and have a look at his uh, his style, because it's really graphical. Um, I've forgotten to put the link in there in the show notes for you Rob but if you if you hunt it down and have a look at his work it's very black and white line graphical of wildlife um, but English wildlife it, it's really beautiful He's it's really a- weird just just uh, a week or so ago someone on um, social media tweeted a picture of uh, a, a book he'd illustrated right um, and yeah I didn't know he uh, he was an illustrator at all right. but yeah it's beautiful beautiful stuff yeah, it's print. Print. He's a printer as well. I think you know, like yeah. as in uh, lino or whatever he's engraving into. So, um, are we done on space? I think we probably are. Yeah. yeah. The only other slightly connected thing is uh, I'm designing a logo for my for me for this northern boy, and I've decided to go on a vaguely sci-fi uh, angle with it. Um, and I've emailed you um, uh, uh, a picture, so you're going to give me some feedback. Am oh, I? When you get a minute, yep. Not uh, not now, <laughs> not over the air. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, of course. So, well, I'd be I'd be I'd be honoured to, but I mean, you yeah. well, I mean, why are you asking me? <laughs> right, I'm looking forward to seeing it because designing something for yourself is so difficult. Yeah, that really click, is. by the way, was, was me taking the lid off a jar of pickle lily. Oh, what kind of what piccalilli is it? Tracklements, oh, particularly particularly quite, British piccalilli. Quite good. They're a bit strange, slightly greeny coloured. It is green, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so our challenge, pies. our challenge last week, Rob, was to make our own pies. Yeah. Have you stuck to that challenge? <clears throat> Not exactly. Oh, Have you? Yes. Oh, what? <laughs> Damn you! I made a pie today. What did you make? I've made a um, uh, a beef and ale pie with a suet short crust top. I did wonder when you posted a picture of the Atora. Yeah, and uh, I haven't I haven't got any pie dishes because uh, they're all packed away because we've got, uh, all our stuff's in the garage. But um, so I've I've used like a, a pot, so I've had to put it over the top. But it's a pretty okay. it's a pretty hardcore pastry. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. Have you taken a picture? Uh, oh yeah, I need to do that. Yeah, I'll get a camera. Hang on. So what have you got, Rob? I have got a pork pie uh, from that I got in a farm shop at Denby's Vineyard today. Where's that? Uh, uh, near Dorking, near Box Hill. Um. So we went out, uh, we were out there uh, picking up some wood slices from a sawmill for a wedding. Uh, and I thought, Denby's, posh vineyard, bound to have a really cracking farm shop, bound to have some nice pies. Uh, and Denby's farm shop is woefully poor. Is it? Um, yeah, it's kind of one small room of badly displayed, you know, badly wrapped products. But I did buy a pot pie, and it's uh, so it's from A and R Pies, and apparently it's award-winning. I know nothing else about them, so I don't know what award it won. Um, but it looks all right. It's quite a chunky cut, which uh, which I like. So I'm going to go in now while you're ferreting about with your pie. So excuse me one second.
that's actually really nice. That tracklement piccolilli is quite something. Um, really good, but yeah, very green and sort of crunchy. Yeah. Um, sort of um, very cauliflower and gherkin, gherkin-y. But the pie's good. It's uh, it's pretty good pastry. Um, and nice chunky meat. Um, very little jelly. Um, but not bad. A better than average pork pie. We're definitely um, seeing a trend for not much jelly. We are. Come on, guys. Yes. Up the jelly levels. I like it. Me too. Oh, and I'm up, uh, your, up uh, your aspic ratio. I'm going to tap. I'm going to tap my my pastry crust. That's not a euphemism. Listen Ooh. to that. That's good. That I think. Good. Right, I'm going in. I'm going in. Wow, that pastry is limey. Quite. You uh, might need a JCB to get in there. Mm. Oh, that is that is good, mate. Right, is so, this is, is it hot? Yeah, yeah, it's been in the oven for nearly an hour. So little individual pots. I've been my wife yep. one as well. So the sauce, the oh my god, it's so good. So the recipe is from um, uh, there's a uh, a a lady uh, journalist called Felicity Cloak. Is she called? I've completely forgotten her name. Um, but she writes for the Guardian, and um, she, uh, she the, her series of recipes are called the perfect how to cook the perfect x so she takes uh, loads of cookbooks and cooks every single type uh, every single different variation on a on a particular theme and then Ooh. she comes up with like you know so she eats them over a course of a week or however long. Yeah. and then she comes up with the perfect recipe and she does it for cocktails and all sorts of things she's definitely worth um following she's a really good writer and um and very funny and this is her steak and ale pie so it's using um beef a shin, because it's, yep. it's a very sinewy, um, fatty bit of meat, super cheap, and uh, yep. yeah, and she, one of hers, I didn't have any pickled onions, but she uses pickled onions in it mm. as a, as the onion. But yeah, it's damn good. The 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 pastry is more like um, you know suet pudding. Yeah, nice. If, if you like a pudding, I do. That is damn good. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, it is really good. I'll take you, a photo. Have you, have you got can a I mark yet? myself? Is that a bit Of course you can. Give that an eight. Of course you can. An eight? Yeah. Wow. You'll have to get um, Jess's opinion as well. Yeah, I will. She I'll can get, give it a mark. I'll get her to mark it, yeah. It, yeah, okay. Um, I'm having a Timothy Taylor's Landlord. Mm. The, beer, the, the pie is made with the Bolt Maker one, which I'd never had before. Okay. another Timothy Taylor's beer. Yeah. But I love Timothy Taylor. It's probably my favourite beer. Yeah, it's my dad's favourite beer. Um, I've got uh, something from your neck of the woods. I've got a Hogsback Brewery beer, oh, yeah. uh, Gar- Gardener's Tipple, uh, which is 4% English bitter. Yeah. Um, nice it is too. Although now I've tasted this pickle early, all I can taste are the little baby pickled onions that are in it. Oh, lush. Now, the, yeah, this is a 4.1% English bitter as well, so it's probably very similar. Mm. But yeah, yeah, it's a good, good, good couple of pies. Good pie. Um, I didn't... I. I, I I had I brought back from Houston a space some space food you can buy. I think you can get it in the science museum or anywhere. It was yeah, like yeah. an ice cream bar, like um, yeah. freeze dried. Um, but I, I, I ate it, and uh, there was no food in the house once, and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I ate it. But it was like eating uh, polystyrene, uh, nice, and had but probably less flavour. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did think uh, today we should have tried to get some space food, but. Yeah. Um, Given that review, probably best not to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I ended my thing with my website of Peter Furman, um, that going back to a UK that is, I wrote at the end, you probably read this, it is long gone and very likely never really existed. Um, <coughs> yes. So I thought, uh, I'm not going to dwell on what has happened over the last week, but I thought next week we could explore the dangers of nostalgia because you said a quote to me what was the quote about nostalgia that you oh i can't remember right well that's that's great thanks (laughs) (laughs) i remember maybe i remember maybe i just remember fondly you actually telling me but it never actually happened no i remember telling you a quote about nostalgia i just can't remember what the quote was (laughs) 
Uh, yep, yeah, no. Don't worry, I'll cut it out. No, I'm not going to cut it out, I'm just going to end, yeah. end, end the podcast on ritual humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, thank you, Jill. No, so yeah, no, so we'll be back next week and we'll be talking about the one again. We've got lots of news. Oh, my goodness, that's a creaky door, isn't it? That's like a, nice. like that's a sound a effect out of a horror film. That's, that's bingo going out. Are you, a, are you a Foley artist in your spare time? <laughs> yeah. Um, I've just got to go and saw a cabbage in half. Yes, of course. Well, uh, you go do that, John. I'll finish my pie. All right, then. Well, uh, until really next week. Really good to talk to you. Yeah, have a lovely weekend. And uh, thanks for all the space facts. Very, very impressive. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, <laughs> We're all good for making time. I have the fireflies.